I was thinking about where to start this message. I was thinking about how many of you love shopping? Like you just, shopping's your thing. You could go and do your thing. You know, I'm indifferent to it, right? When I shop with my wife, though, it looks a little bit different. I don't know if anybody else is like this. Where If I go shopping and I'm looking for something, like I go to TJ Maxx or Target or wherever it is, I see something that looks kind of nice. I take it off the hanger. I go and I put my 15 bucks on the register and I walk out and I hope it fits. I hope it looks good. Like that's the way I do it. When you go shopping with my wife, here's the way that she does it, okay? She looks at everything. Like, she just finds something. She looks at everything, and then she pulls it off the hanger and says, you need to go to the fitting room, and you need to try it on, and you need to look at it from all angles in the mirror, check the backside. You need to take pictures of it, of it on, and send it to everybody in the world. Does this flatter me? Does this look nice on me? And, and, and then, once you've done all that, then you decide, is that something you want to buy? Now, I'll be honest, there's a little bit of wisdom in one of those choices. There's a little bit of wisdom in actually being able to go and see something on to verify what it's going to look like. And so I will say my wife's way is probably a little bit better than mine. Uh, but it's, it, it's, 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 it's funny like that. And you ever notice that sometimes it's the same thing in the classroom? Where you can go and you can read something and, and read this is how it's done. And that's great. And some of you are really smart and all you have to do is read something and you're like, boom, I got it. But for me... Like, I want to read it, and I want to see it. I want to see it put into action. I need to, to see how it plays out. Uh, so you need to tell me and show me what it looks like. And that's where I'm going to find good success in, in accomplishing something new. What about you? Are you that same way? Are you that same way where you don't just benefit from just information, you also want to see it in action. You want to see what it looks like. And as we've been studying the book of Colossians, it's been a really good study for us to, to, to process through together. Where Paul is writing to the church in Colossia, and he's writing to us as well. And, and he's, he's talking about this is what it looks like if we are going to mature in our faith. If we're going to grow in our faith, if we're going to become mature Christians, he's saying this is how you do it. Here's some principles, some ideas that you have to put into practice. And he tells us spiritual growth is not a matter of Uh, religious conformity. Sometimes we have this idea that the most spiritual people are the people who follow all the rules. I don't smoke, I don't chew, I don't go with girls who do. Spiritual people are the people who have these religious experiences where, you know, the Holy Spirit and all these uh, religious emotional experiences. And Paul says, this is not the key to spiritual growth. That's not what spiritual growth looks like. It is not a matter of behavior modification and religious experiences. And what he's been saying is if you want to to grow in your faith, this is what it looks like. That you hold on to the head. You hold on to Christ. That the way we grow as a Christian is that we grow deeper in love with Jesus. And we go deeper with him. And that begins to change our heart. That begins to change who we are from the inside. And as we go deeper with with him, we begin to put off some of these old patterns. Some of these selfish ways that we used to live, used to think. And then we put on these, these new clothes almost. We put on this new characteristics. We put on love. And this is, impl- this is displayed through a number of different characteristics. And it's defined by love of others. It's defined by, instead of now being me self-centered, now I become others-focused. Where it's no longer about me, now it's about me serving and loving the people around us. And 
again, this is where this study for me, like I can't speak for you, man. It's been really good for me to wrestle with what does it look like for me to be a mature Christian. But again, I come back to this idea where we've read these principles, we've read these things. Man, I love to be able to see it. What does it actually look like? What does someone look like who is uh, holding fast to Christ? What does it look like for someone who is mature in their faith? And that's what Paul is going to do. He understood this idea. This is why in, in 1 Corinthians 11, he says, follow me as I follow Christ. He realizes, hey, sometimes we like to be able to see what it looks like. And so the end of the book of Colossians, uh, this is a text that a lot of times you just skip over, right? You read this and it's a bunch of names. You're like, man, these names don't mean much of anything to me. They're just gibberish. I can't even pronounce most of them, right? But these people that that Paul is going to introduce, there's a list of ten names. These are people that he gives to us as as an example. These are people that Paul says, they are living out what I've taught you. They're living out this idea of holding on to Christ. They're living out the idea of being others-focused instead of self-focused. And they become examples to us. The beautiful thing is, is this is a group of people, and they become examples to us on what we could look like. As a body, as, as a group of people, what we could look like if we all made that commitment to, to allow our maturity to be, to be fine by love for other people, to be fine by holding on to Christ. And it's inspiring to think about what you see here and, and what we could become. I mean, I've told you this. Like, I am so excited for the season we are in here at Restoration Church. The Lord has just done so much in this last year. And, and, I, and I just, I'm excited for, for where the Lord is doing, go, going with us, where he's taking us. And I begin to think about, man, what, what could become of us? Where could God take us next? Man, if we were like, yes, we're going to jump in both feet wholeheartedly. Man, I'm here to love others, to serve Christ, to know Christ, and to make Christ known. I have this picture of us being something beautiful and powerful, where we don't just make a dent in our city, but we actually make a difference. So we're going to see the example of these 10 people today, and we're going to see some characteristics of what could happen to our church if we decided to live these things out through the examples of these 10 people. So first thing that we would see, uh, the gospel impact in our church, uh, first thing we'll see is that there is a, a partnership and a faithfulness in mission. That if we commit as a, as a group of people, if we commit to, to knowing Christ, and to allowing that to define our relationship with him and not our religious activity, but we allow just Christ to be the foundation, man, there becomes this incredible partnership where we link arms together, where we are are, are willing to do whatever it takes for us to accomplish the mission. And what's the mission? We don't get to decide what the mission is. God does. Uh, uh, Our mission comes from the Great Commission in in Matthew chapter 28, where Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations. So we would say our mission is to know Christ and to make Christ known. And here's here's what you're going to see. The first name that you read in in, in this section of Scripture is in verse 7. A guy by the name of Tychicus. Now, I'm going to call him Ty. I've told you this before. When you read Bible names, you read them fast and with authority, and everybody thinks you know what you're talking about, right? All right, I'm going to call him Ty, just to make it easy on all of us, okay? He's the guy in verse 7. This is a guy, Ty is a guy who 
found the Lord. Uh, Paul, the Apostle Paul, was preaching the gospel, probably in Ephesus, and uh, uh, Ty responded to faith and became a, a believer through the ministry of Paul. You see Ty, he's mentioned five times throughout the New Testament. He's, he's mentioned in Acts chapter 20, Ephesians 6, Colossians 4, 2 Timothy 4, and Titus chapter 3. And here's, here's what Paul writes about Ty. Verse 7, he says, He is my beloved brother, faithful in ministry and a fellow servant. And it continues in verse 8. Verse 8, you actually understand what role Ty had in the ministry with the Apostle Paul. Where Paul says that Ty's job was to, to take this letter. So Paul is writing this letter from prison. He's writing to the Colossians. And he, he finishes the letter and he says, Ty, I want you to take this letter to the church of Colossia. And I want you to, to give it to them. So Ty's role in ministry is he's a mailman. That's what he does. He takes letters and goes and delivers them. You see this? He also delivered the, the, the book of Philemon, the letter to, the, letter to Philemon, as well as uh, uh, probably the letter to the Ephesians as well. So this is Ty's role. He is a mailman. Now when we look at that, it's a pretty simple ministry, right? It's not too difficult. It, it, it's not dramatic. It's not exciting. It's not out in the public. He doesn't have a microphone in his hand. It's, it's, it's rather small and minuscule minuscule, but it is incredibly invaluable and important to, again, accomplishing the mission. Because when you think about this, without Ty being faithful in his job as being the mailman, the letters that Paul wrote don't reach their destination, right? I mean, I, I don't think it's too much of a stretch that, that we would say that because of Ty's inglorious work of being faithful in taking the letter to the church of Colossia and the other letters he took, I don't think it's too much of a stretch for us to say that we have much of the New Testament because he was faithful to what God called him to do, to be the mailman, to take these letters and deliver them. Like we are studying the book of Colossians this summer because Ty was faithful to his job of taking the letter to Colossia and now it became in our Bible and what we're reading today. And here's the reality. If we're going to accomplish our goal to know Christ, to make Christ known, to make a difference in our city, it takes many of us to make that happen. It takes many of us to make that happen. Not just the people you see up front, not the people you see with a microphone, not the people you see with a guitar, but it takes so many hands for us to, to do what we do. People in the background, people that would almost appear insignificant, but they are essential to the mission that God has called us to right here at Restoration Church. And this is where as a group of people, this is where Paul says that when you are, are knowing Christ, that there's this humility that takes over you. Where no longer is it about me, now I'm going to give myself away to serve others. Where it's no longer about my recognition. Now it's about doing what is necessary for us to accomplish the mission. I want to be careful not to throw out names here. But I, like when you think about Restoration Church, man, I, I love what we have going on here. The worship is just great today. Thank you, team. The preaching is all right. But... Do you realize how much goes in just for us to do this this morning? That there's a setup and teardown team that you never see. That has the most thankless and menial job of every Sunday coming and snapping every one of those snaps on that screen. And setting up all the stuff that we do. 
but it is essential for us to do what we do. Without them, we don't have this. They are essential for us to preach the gospel. I think about this. I think about uh, those people that serve in the nursery. Not many people, uh, there's a few people like Ron Pelson, but not many people love other people's babies. It just doesn't work that way, right? But do you understand that those who serve in the nursery play such a vital role, a vital role, where these parents can come and drop their kids off in the back and come out here and relax and hear the word of God and be exposed to the gospel because there's people that are faithfully serving in the back saying, you know what, I can help and watch these little babies. Make sure these babies are having a good time so that way mom and dad can come and be exposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen, every one of you, I don't care what your role is. You are essential to the mission of Restoration Church. We aren't Restoration Church without you. No matter how big or how small your role is, you have a part, and we need you to continue to plug in. And look at this. Drop down a couple verses. You see in verse 12, you see the name Epaphras. He is the the leader of the church at Colossia. In fact, he's the reason why Paul wrote this letter. Remember, uh, the Epaphras, he goes to Paul and he says, hey, we're having this issue with these Gnostic people. We don't know, uh, they're, they're preaching a false gospel. They're saying we've got to add to it. And so Paul is writing this letter in response to what Epaphras has come and talked to him about. And I love this because when Paul is going to highlight Epaphras, he's going to say, hey, Epaphras, here's what I love about you. Epaphras being a preacher, a pastor. Paul doesn't highlight how great of a preacher he is. He doesn't highlight his preaching ability. He doesn't highlight his leadership uh, ability. He doesn't highlight how great of an evangelist that Epaphras is and how great he is at sharing the gospel with people. What does he highlight? His prayerfulness. He says, listen, Epaphras struggles on your behalf in prayer. And not just that he struggles on your behalf, it says he always struggles. He always is struggling on your behalf in prayer. Men, when's the last time that you did that? When's the last time that you struggled and wrestled with God for someone else? For someone that you love? For someone you care about? I mean, I think about all the difficult situations that we face in life. The difficult relationships we have, right? Our kids, things going on with them. Our spouse, our family, our coworkers. And how quick it is for us to go and talk to somebody else about them. Oh, you got to hear what, what my kids did, man. It's driving me crazy. How quick are we to go and, 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 and vent to somebody else? How quick are we to, to sit there and yell and complain and argue with them? Versus how quick are we to actually struggle and wrestle in prayer that God would do something in that relationship? I would just guess... That some of those difficult relationships, man, I would guess that God would do a greater work if we would go to him and wrestle in prayer with him instead of wrestling with each other or wrestling to someone else. That we would allow God to step in and do something. In fact, I think Epaphras is a pastor of the church and I'll expose myself a little bit here. I think that the mark, the, the, the mark of, of a good shepherd the mark of a faithful pastor is not having a good pastor who has great preaching ability. Not having a pastor who's a great leader. Not having a pastor who's got the best dad jokes. 
Those are good. I should say that. But the, the, the mark of being a good and great pastor, the most important thing is whether or not the pastor loves you, will wade into your story and wrestle and wrestle and wrestle in prayer over you. And wrestle with God. God, would you show up? Would you meet this person where they are? They've got this difficulty. God, would you just and wrestle in prayer over you? That is the mark of what the church needs. That is the mark of what we need. And we begin to go through and look at all these churches and, and we try these churches out and we're like, oh man, that pastor's really funny. Man, that pastor, he's, he's good looking. Man, that pastor's all these other things. And the, the thing that we should be deciding on what kind of church we go to is not how good the preaching is and not how good the music is. But whether or not there's a pastor who loves us enough to wade into our story, to get on their knees and, and struggle in prayer for us and wrestle with God, that God would show up and work in your life. Man, that would be the mark of the church that you should be plugging into. One more example of faithful gospel ministries, verse 17. Verse 17, there's a guy by the name of Archippus. Again, we can call him Archippus. I'm just going to call him Kip because I think that name sounds good. You ever notice how sometimes ministry can be hard? Like our job to love people, to, 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 to do this, it can be difficult at times. People are tough. But because the, the mission is so important, we need to recognize that we, ha we have to be able to encourage one another. That we would remain faithful. This is what Paul does to Kip Verse uh, 17, he says, uh, see that he is faithful to the ministry that he's received. For some reason, we don't know why, Paul's become, or excuse me, Kip has become discouraged. He's frustrated. The church doesn't listen to him. Things aren't going the way he wants. It's almost easier for Kip to say, man, I, instead of going and being a part of that, it's probably easier for me to go home. I'll just stay at home and you guys can keep doing what you're doing. He needs some encouragement. Kip, we need you. Kip remained faithful. Kip finished what God has called us to. Listen, who around you, who is it around you that's struggling? Who around you is discouraged? Who is it that we need to come alongside and we need to say, hey, we need you. The church, the mission, for us to be who we are, we need you plugged in. We need you to remain faithful and trust that God will work here. Trust that God will do something here. We've got to be willing to have that encouragement to the people around us. We need you. Let's remain faithful to what God has called us to. So number one is when we become a people who, who are, are committed to what God, the God is doing here, to the gospel, that there's this faithfulness and this partnership that we have in ministry. But the second thing that you'll see is that when we uh, live these gospel principles out, that there becomes this tremendous diversity within our community. This diversity within the body of Christ. Look at this. When you look at the team that Paul has assembled, you look at these names, verse, verses 10 and 11. He says, I've got these three guys, uh, uh, Aristarchus. Aristarchus, verse 11, he greets you. He talks about Mark, who's the cousin of Barnabas. And he talks about this guy, Jesus, who's called Justice. He said, these are men of circumcision. These were the only Jewish people that would work with Paul at this point. Okay, so these are people, these are Jews, they're in this one nationality, this one area. On the flip side, look at verse 9. He says, hey, we've got Onesimus. Onesimus is a part of our team. Verse 12, he talks about Epaphras. 
Both Onesimus and Epaphras, these are guys from actually the city of, of Colossia. These are Greek-speaking Gentiles. They're not Jewish. They're from a whole different region. And then, you've got, then you've got verse 14, you've got the doctor, Paul. Paul, again, this is a Greek-speaking Gentile. He's the only non-Jewish author throughout the entire New Testament, right? So you've got these, these all sorts of nationalities. You've got these, all these things that would make these two people different, make these two groups not work together. You've got racial issues. You've got language differences. You've got differences in culture and religious background. And there's all these reasons why these two groups of people, these Jews and these Gentiles, should not work together. They don't belong together. All these reasons why they should remain separate. But here, under the mission that God has given the church, they've come together. They're willingly on the same team, working together towards the same goal. And I love it because it's not just an ethnic issue. That the gospel transcends our economic and our class differences as well. I mean, here you've got Paul. Paul's like an aristocrat. He is incredibly educated. That's who he is. Luke, verse 14, he's a doctor, right? You've got these guys that are, are up here in the class, and then you've got Onesimus. You remember Onesimus' socioeconomic background? He's a runaway slave. He's a, a slave. And so you've got this team that is about as diverse could ever be. You've got different races, you've got different socioeconomic backgrounds, you've got different ages, you've got everything in the middle of it. And this is what the beauty of the gospel does, is that when we commit ourselves to the things of God, when we commit ourselves to the things of God, it brings together people from all walks of life, and it unites us under the salvation that we have through Jesus Christ because of the cross. And we say this here at Restoration Church. We say this here, that it doesn't matter. We don't care who you are. It doesn't matter if you're black, brown, white. It doesn't matter if you're blue and green like the Seahawks or gold and silver like, like, like the Raiders. Like you are loved and accepted and welcomed here. I don't care what your ethnicity is. We say it doesn't matter if you slept up on a, on a big house on the hill or whether you slept on the street last night. It doesn't matter what your political persuasion is. It doesn't really matter if you have a bunch of degrees in your office or whether you are a la common laborer. It doesn't matter. You are loved. You are welcomed here at Restoration Church. In fact, we need you to be a part of what we're doing. We need you. We want to be careful when we talk about diversity because sometimes when we talk about diversity, we think, well, that just obliterates all of our differences, right? And it doesn't. Diversity in the church does not mean, not mean that we all begin to, to look the same and talk the same and dress the same and, and have the same everything. That's not what it means. Because the gospel, in fact, it beautifies our differences. Right? Again, this is where we, we come together in humility. And in humility, we begin to value other cultures. We begin to value other languages. We begin to value other people's food differences. And the things that make us different, we, instead of saying, hey, you've got to be just like me, we begin to value the, the, the diversity that God brings to the church. Maybe even we might even learn a few things from one another. In fact, today we've got Dwight and Sarah Hires uh, with us today. They are from uh, Mexico. We, they're the couple that we got to go serve with on our Mexico mission trip in June. And excited to be able to have them come and, and see us and, and be with us. It's, it's a joy for us to be able to do that. When we went to Mexico, uh, we spent a good chunk of time with our Mexico team saying, hey, we are going to go and we're going to love 
and we're going to serve these people. But we aren't the answer to all their problems. We are, we, we are going to go and we're going to love and we're going to serve. And one of the things that we wanted to emphasize with our team is you should also learn a few things along the way. You should learn because there, there's just a beauty in the differences that God has created us. And the thing with our culture, I mean, this is who we are, right? We are, uh, we emphasize systems. We emphasize organization. We are a task-oriented culture, right? That's just kind of who we are. We're task-oriented. We just go and we, we do, and that's a good thing. And the thing I loved about Mexico, about the culture that I'm learning from them, is that relationships are the priority. That when you are in Mexico, somebody might just stop by your house, and you may have a to-do list, uh, and you've got hours of cleaning to do and other things to do. Somebody stops at your house, you stop everything you're doing and give them your full attention. You feed them dinner, you hang out with them, you talk with them, because relationships are the priority. And you see how that would benefit our culture in here? So it's not a matter of, hey, we all have to be the same. It's a matter of there's, there's something we can learn from one another. And that's the, the beauty that God does as, as we, we come together in diversity. We value one another. We learn from one another. And it doesn't obliterate our differences. It, cr- it makes them beautiful. It makes the, the, the body beautiful. It beautifies them. So let me ask you this. If the gospel... If the, if the gospel brings diversity, who are you friends with right now that you wouldn't be if it weren't for your relationship with Jesus? You ever thought about that? Who is it that you are friends with right now that you wouldn't normally be if you didn't have a common faith in Jesus? Someone from another ethnicity. We probably wouldn't hang out, but because we have this common faith in Jesus, we have something in common and we're going to be together. Someone from a different socioeconomic background. Someone from a different political persuasion. Who is it around you that looks different than you, that you are friends with and you are in relationship with because you have a common faith in Jesus? Listen, I recognize that for some of us, we start looking around and thinking, and I don't know if I have too many people like that. It's a beauty in a church like Restoration Church. My encouragement to you is begin to seek that out. Begin to to seek those people out. Befriend people in this room that you wouldn't normally gravitate to. Seek them out. Grab lunch together. Share your story of how you came to know Jesus. Love love them and learn from them. It's a beautiful thing. The, The gospel brings us diversity, so it should result in us having some diverse relationships. Third thing that I love about this text what happens in, in the body of Christ when we are, are, are the gospel impact on us is that there becomes grace that it gets extended into our relationships. That we learn to extend grace to one another. Onesimus, he's the example. The story behind Onesimus, he's mentioned in verse 9, is Onesimus is a slave who, who stole something from his, his owner. His owner is a guy by the name of Philemon. He, he stole something from Philemon, and he ran, and he ran away. Okay? And so as, as, as Tychicus, as, he carry, as he's carrying this letter to the Colossians, he's taking this letter to the church at Colossia. He also has a second letter with him. The letter to Philemon. The letter to the owner of Onesimus. And in that letter, here's what Paul says. Paul says he urges Philemon to forgive Onesimus. He urges that there be reconciliation in that relationship. He says, I want you to extend grace 
to him. I want you to extend forgiveness. And I love this because Paul's not just a guy who, who tells you what to do. He actually practices what he preaches. He practices. Because included in Paul's team, we read his name, uh, Mark. Mark, who's the cousin of Barnabas. We read about him in, 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 in verse 11. Uh, the story behind Mark is pretty exciting. I, I love this story. This actually was one of my very first sermons I ever preached. Where we're introduced to this guy, Mark, who was going by another name. It's called John Mark. We're introduced him to in, in Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12, he lives with his mom in Jerusalem. And his mom, they must have a bigger house. And so they've got the church coming to meet at their house. And so John Mark is around these guys. And, and you've got these church leaders in, in that day and age. You had, you had Saul and Barnabas. They're the leaders of the church. And they're meeting at John Mark's house. And, and Paul and Barnabas... Paul and Barnabas, they get ready to go on a missionary journey. They're going to go plant churches. Hey, we want to take this gospel. We want to make Christ known. We're going to take it. We're going to plant churches around the region. And guess who they bring with them? Young John Mark. What an opportunity for the young kid, right? They bring John Mark along with them, and they're journeying on their missionary journey. They get to the, to the area of, of Cyprus, and we find in Acts 13 that we don't really know why, but John Mark decides to abandon the team. John Mark leaves in the middle of the mission and goes back home to Jerusalem. Don't know why. I don't know, maybe it was the food. I don't know what it was. We next see John Mark in Acts chapter 15. Paul and Barnabas, they'd finished that first leg of their missionary journey, and they're getting ready to go back out. They're going to go back out. They're going to revisit these churches to encourage them. And Barnabas is like, hey, let's bring John Mark with us. Let's bring him along. It'll be good for him. And Paul's like, no. Dude, we can't trust the kid. He, he abandoned us last time. There's no way we can trust him. We're not bringing him. He's not a part of the team anymore. And there becomes this disagreement between Paul and Barnabas. There becomes this disagreement that gets so bad that they have to split up. That, that missionary team of Paul and Barnabas is broken up. And so, so uh, Barnabas, he takes John Mark with him, and they go one way. And Paul takes another guy by the name of Silas, and they go another way, and they go their separate ways. Right? Just a little... Sidebar, here's one of the reasons why I love the Bible and why I find I can believe the Bible because the Bible doesn't, doesn't skim over the bad stuff. It is honest about failures. And so here you've got Paul and Barnabas. They have a fight. They disagree. And they go their separate ways. And I love this because uh, the Bible is going to tell us that even the best of men, they're still men at best, right? Paul and Barnabas... Man, these are great guys. These are guys that we would all look up to. But they're still men at best. And just like them, sometimes we stumble. Sometimes we fall. Sometimes uh, uh, our egos get the best of us. Sometimes we say stupid things. Scripture teaches us to be patient with one another. That every one of us is a work in progress. We need to cut each other a little bit of slack. And when we screw up, we need to repent. Say, oh, man, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for the things I said. I'm sorry for what I did. And we keep plugging away together. So there's separation between Paul and John Mark. And here, 10 years later, Paul's writing this letter to, to the church at Colossia. And he, he writes this recommendation towards John Mark. He says, hey, if Mark comes to you, I want you to welcome him. He's a good guy. Welcome him in. In fact, uh, uh, a few years later, at the end of Paul's life, 
Paul is in prison again, and he's writing a letter to, to second, writing the second letter to Timothy. And, and he writes and says, hey, listen, everyone has abandoned me except for Luke. Everyone's, everybody's left me in my time of need. Paul's in prison. He, he knows he's, his future is not secure. Death is a, real poss- is a real possibility. And Paul, who does Paul want by his side? 2 Timothy chapter 4, he says, bring Mark. Bring John Mark, for he's useful for me for ministry. I love this, that Paul is actually saying, hey, not only do I want you to extend grace to one another, I will show you what it looks like myself. And I have this bitter issue with with John Mark all these years ago, and I've extended grace to him. And now he is useful for me in ministry, and you should receive him with my recommendation because he is a good guy. Reality is, man, when we're in intimate relationships with one another, people can be hard. There can be disagreements. There can be different ideas. Uh, We all have various different levels of maturity that we're going through. And just because that we are are coming together with a common mission doesn't mean there's not going to be any division. Doesn't mean we're not going to disagree. Doesn't mean there's not going to be tension and disputes between us. But again, if we are holding fast to Christ, if we are putting on love, one of the characteristics is love this is we learned in chapter 3, verse 14, Colossians 3, 14. It is that we learn to forgive one another as Christ has forgiven us. And the power of the gospel, the power of the gospel is that it mends the rifts that appear between us. That Paul says, hey, listen, Onesimus and Philemon, you need to extend grace and forgiveness to one another, and I'm going to show you what it looks like between me and John Mark. In fact, I'll just mention this out. Jake. Jake's our admin guy here at the church. Uh, Jake, I, I love the guy. I am so thankful the Lord brought Jake to Restoration Church. Anybody ever notice he's a little quirky at times? Notice the laughs here? His wife's hand just went up super high. I, I love Jake. But at times, we disagree. At times, I don't like the way that he, he, he's doing things. At times, he doesn't like the way the things I tell him to do. At times, I frustrate him. At times he's doing something and I just talk over him and, and, and I'm not very gracious in that. The reality is we're in a relationship. It's natural at times there's going to be tension. It's natural at times there's going to be disagreements. And what we've had to learn together is we have to learn how to extend grace to one another. We've had to learn how to forgive one another. So when he's wrong, I tell him, Jake, you're wrong, and he apologizes to me. And when I'm wrong, I'll tell you when that happens. We'll tell you how that works out. But that's what we do. We learn to extend grace with one another. To say, hey, this relationship is more important than my opinion. And I'm going to sacrifice, and we're going to come back and extend grace to one another so we can keep moving forward on mission. Honestly, when you look at the mission of the church, you look at who God has brought here, chances are you're not going to like everybody. There's going to be disagreements. There's going to be tension. But the question is, can you extend grace to one another? Can we look and say, man, the mission is so important of what God is trying to do here that I'm willing to extend grace. I'm willing to forgive so we can keep going forward on mission and becoming that beautiful thing that God wants us to become as a church. I'm going to close with just one more example on Paul's team. Sometimes for some of us, we've been around long enough. 
we've opened ourselves up, we've opened up our heart, and we've been hurt. We've been abused. We've been taken advantage of. We've been violated. And so what happens is sometimes, sometimes when we've been hurt, when we've been burned, we think, well, I'm never going to do that again. And so we keep people at arm's length. Because we know, listen, I've been there. It's incredibly painful. When you open yourself up, you invite someone in, and they hurt you, they backstab you, they, 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 they treat you poorly. Man, it's terrible. I don't think there's any worse feeling than having to, to go through that. And so sometimes there's that temptation where, where I'm going to protect myself from harm. I'm just going to keep people at arm's length. I'm not going to let them in. I'll just keep them out here. Some of you, you've given your heart to a spouse. That spouse has taken the heart and smashed it into pieces. Some of you, you've invited friends into the deep parts of your life, and they've sold you out, and they've disappointed you. Begin to say, man, it's easier for me just to close my heart. It's easier for me to say, you know, I'm not going to open my heart up so I don't have to deal with that hurt and that pain again. I think Paul knows exactly what this is talking about. Verse 14, Paul talks about a guy by the name of Demos. Verse 14 says, Luke, the, 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 the doctor, he greets you, as does Demos. At this point, this guy Demos, man, he's a part of the team. He's a trusted member of the team. He's a reliable friend of Paul. He looks the part. He talks the part. He played the part. But again, we look at 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy, Paul writes this. I imagine from anguish. He says in verse 10, Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Demas, this is a guy who looked the part. He looked the part of a Christian. He talked the part. He played the part. He was close to Paul. And ultimately, Demas loved the world more than he loved Christ. Listen, if you claim to follow Christ, there's going to come a time, in fact, there's probably going to come many times, when you have to decide, am I going to pick up my cross, remain faithful to what God has called me to do, or am I going to be lured away by the world. Lured away by the world offers me. We're going to have that opportunity. And some of you, even today, some of you, that's a decision you have to make today. Am I going to pick up my cross and follow Jesus? Or am I going to be lured away to what the world has to offer? Undoubtedly, I think Paul, going through this with Demas, you imagine it's got to be a painful loss. Someone who's right beside him in ministry, a close friend who abandons him in his time of need. Man, you can picture that. You can feel what Paul is feeling. And here's what I'd say. Here's what I'd say to us. If we decide to keep a little heart, man, it might be safe and it might be protected. We miss out on the opportunity of being a part of something beautiful. That no one benefits from your closed heart with your limited vision. You don't contribute much to the people around you when you have that small heart because you're afraid of getting hurt. But if you enlarge your heart, if you invite people in, if you let people in, man, you are going to open yourself up for pain. You are going to expose yourself. And someone may take advantage of you and they may hurt you. 
And man, it's painful. But even though you're vulnerable, you enlarge your heart to tremendous potential. You enlarge your heart to opportunities to experience the greatest joys of life. That if you open up your heart to one another, you open yourself up to the exhilaration of God using you to accomplish something amazing and eternal for the things of God. That God could use you and people like us to make a difference for eternity in the lives of people if we would just open up our hearts. Invite people in. You can cultivate deafness in your heart you're never going to hear discord but neither will you hear a glorious strains of a great symphony you can cultivate blindness and you're never going to see ugly but you also never see the beauty of a sunset beauty of a lightning storm like we had last night here's the application would you jump in with us Would you open your heart up to these people right here? Would you make a commitment to what God is doing right here? Jump in with us, both feet in, linking arms to say, let's let's find this partnership in ministry. Let's be faithful with what God has called us to do. Let's value the diversity that God has brought here. Let's value that diversity. Let's extend grace to one another. Because if we can do this, and we open ourselves up for a little bit of pain, we also open ourselves for God to do something beautiful right here. For God to take a group like us to make a difference in our city, to make a difference in our world, to do something powerful. asking you to jump in with us. I'm asking you not one hand in, one hand out. Not with a little bit of heart holding little people back. No, I'm asking you to jump in. Both hands, both feet. Heart wide open. Jump in and let's see what God would do with us. Let's see what God would do with Restoration Church. This next season, see where God would take us and see the lives that God would transform.